Our Lord Jesus has taught that little children belong to the kingdom of God. Then in verse 15, he uses these little children as an illustration of true discipleship. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. As little children are weak and completely dependent upon another, so true disciples receive the kingdom in spiritual weakness and complete dependence upon the grace of God. Then in verses 17 to 22, the Holy Spirit illustrates this principle by showing a rich young ruler who is not as a little child, who depends and trusts in himself and therefore enters not into the kingdom of God and receives eternal life. And this passage, the rich young ruler, is just perfect for evangelistic preaching. And though we do preach the gospel to our children regularly, and of course we look to those who do profess faith to examine their faith in light of the marks of grace, we cannot preach evangelistic sermons to people who are not present. And so it should be the prayer and action of this congregation that unbelievers would weekly, regularly come to this church so that they can be under weekly, regular, evangelistic preaching. And then we would be able to take such texts as this and wrestle with unbelieving souls who are trusting in themselves. So make that a matter of priority to your prayer life and our prayer meeting. Make it a matter of priority in your life to personally witness and invite unbelievers to the ordinary means of grace so that then we can prepare and preach evangelistically, Lord willing, to the saving of souls. And so rather than preaching it evangelistically, I want to preach this in terms of instruction. You see, our Lord is engaging one-on-one with an unbeliever. And we all, I hope, desire to learn to be better personal evangelists. And here we can learn from the way of the Master. How do we share the gospel with the people we know. Well, here we can learn from Jesus Christ himself. How should we engage with unbelievers in the gospel? Well, our Lord is in a home in Perea. He then leaves us home to go on a journey, which will ultimately end in him entering into Jerusalem. As he's on this journey, it says in verse 17, And when he was gone forth into the way, 
there came one running and kneeling to him. Who is this one running? Well, you have to look at all three Gospels for a description. It says here in verse 22, this is someone who has great possessions. In Luke 18.23, the parallel account, it says this one is very rich. In Matthew 19.20, it describes this man as a young man. So possibly between 24 and 40 is the general description there. And then Luke chapter 18, verse 18 says he is a ruler. And so when you put all three Gospels together, this is the one whom we call the rich young ruler. And this is the kind of person I'm sure we all know. I've met this person many times in my life and many times in Grand Rapids. I'm sure this person is in your family. I'm sure this person is one of your neighbours. Or he's in your workplace. Or this person is someone you've met as you go about your business. This is a person who is rich. He's got a comfortable life. Money. Gadgets. Possessions. He's not poor. Got a good job. He's got a good income. He can have good vacations. He can have good hobbies because he has the money to pay for it. He's a very comfortable person. You probably know that person. Young and the vitality of youth. Not a care or a worry in the world. I've got years to live, years and decades to live. I'm in the prime of life. A ruler. Here it is most likely referring to someone who's a leader in the local synagogue. So he's not an atheist, by all means. He's not saved, but he's not an atheist either. He believes in God. He believes in revealed religion. Maybe that's someone you know. Maybe they go to church. Maybe they don't. Maybe they say they're religious, or maybe they say they're spiritual. Maybe they say they believe in God, or maybe they believe in a God. Or maybe there's someone who even says they believe in Jesus Christ. Is this person someone known to you? Comfortable in life? Young, vibrant, and religious? This man may have it all, but he knows there's one thing missing. He came running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, or literally good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Mark's description of this man is that he is sincere and urgent. He is concerned for his soul. It says he comes running. And you'll know that in the first century, it is not becoming to run in society. 
It's not the thing you do. It's not proper. You do not run as an adult. But he doesn't care about polite society. He has something urgent on his soul. He runs. And then it says he kneels. It's a state of humility. It's a state of meekness. There's something he desires and he doesn't have the answer. So he's coming to Jesus Christ for the answer. Good master. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a fantastic question. It's not that the Pharisees, with all their questions about superficial things or about ceremonial laws, it's straight to the big one. How can I be right with God? How can I be saved? In Acts chapter 2 verse 37, the gospel is being preached to the Jews. And they're convicted by it. And what do they say? What must we do? It's a good question. Paul and Silas are in prison. And the Philippian jailer is convicted about what's happening. What must I do to be saved? That's this question here. And I'm sure it's not every day someone runs up to you and asks you these kinds of questions. But maybe in your life, There's been this friend who is comfortable, young, and religious. And maybe something's happened in life. I don't know, COVID, a family death, family sickness. And they come to you knowing you're a believer. And maybe they ask you something about salvation. Now, what if one of your friends, your work colleagues, came to you and asked you one of these questions? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must we do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? How would you answer? How would you respond? How does Jesus respond? Verse 18. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. Seems strange. Let's be honest. You would say that's wrong. If there was an evangelism book, one-on-one, when someone comes to you, what must I do to be saved? Say immediately the words of Paul, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. doesn't say that here though. Why does Jesus Christ not say, believe in me and ye shall have eternal life? Because he does elsewhere. He does elsewhere, but not here. Well, there's a general reason and a particular reason why he says these words. First of all, the general reason. When Christ was speaking to people, he treated them as people. He was personal in his personal evangelism. He didn't treat people like projects. He didn't have this cootie cutter, one size fits all, and then applied it to everyone indiscriminately. No, he looked at people, who are they, what's their background, what's their knowledge, what's their question, what's the situation, what's the circumstance, circumstance, and then in personal grace spoke to them. If you read John 3, Nicodemus, if you read Mark 1, the leper, if you read 
John 4, the Samaritan woman. If you look at the young, the rich young ruler, different ways of interacting and different ways of responding. And that's a lesson for you and me. Too often today, we just want the training, the strategy, the program, and then boom, blanket apply. It lacks wisdom. It lacks personal touch. Are are helps helpful? Yes, they are. But there are no means black and white rules to do. We must treat people for what they are. Men and women made in the image of God with their own personality, their own background, their own situation, and their own circumstances. And that's why Christ generally answers this way. But there's, of course, a particular and specific reason. The man's understanding of spiritual things are wrong. And so Christ responds this way to deconstruct his views and to construct the truth. It's all in the word good. Good master, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Christ responded, Why do you call me good? No one is good apart from God. So what he's doing? The language of goodness is being used in a light, low, superficial way. And it's revealing this man's spiritual views are inadequate. And so Christ responds by showing the error of his views in order to teach the right view. And this is what we must do as well when we interact with people. They might use the word good or truth or salvation or love. And they use the words in a way that is not biblical, it's not weighty, it is not showing the right understanding of spiritual things. And so it's our job to deconstruct their views, to show you have a wrong understanding, and then to construct the right view. This is the truth. And Christ does this explicitly and implicitly in four fields. First of all, the truth of God. The truth of God. You're just coming to me and call me good teacher. You're coming to me and thinking that you can do something to inherit eternal life. You do not understand goodness. The source and standard of goodness is God himself. And until you know goodness and God, you cannot know salvation. What is goodness? Well, if you allow this man to define it, then it's easy to do something to be saved and be pleased by God. But if you have the truth and the biblical view of goodness, it's not so easy. Goodness is moral uprightness and excellency without evil, sin, and impurity. 
and the source of goodness is God himself. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And God's goodness is of himself, derivative from no one and no standard. He is the source. He is the standard. And his goodness is immutable, unchangeable, eternal, holy, without defilement, sin, or evil. That's goodness in its purity. God. And too often evangelism is so man-centered. And the first thing we do is to bring people to the nature of God. Whether using the word good, truth, or love, or justice, or righteousness, or mercy, what have you, it is God we're to draw them to. So if you do not have a good theology of God, you can't do evangelism 101. So how's your doctrine of God? How's your theology of God? Read, learn, study, meditate on God through the Holy Scriptures so you have a great, true understanding of the God whom you love. For Psalm 119 verse 68 says, Thou art good and doest good. But by knowing the truth of goodness in God, now he can correct the, 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 the rich young ruler's view of man. What can I do to inherit life? Matthew makes this a bit more clear. Matthew chapter 19 verse 16 Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He believes he has the ability to do a good thing that has enough merit to please God and God then must give him eternal life. And by showing him why do you call me good? No one is good but God. He not only shows the source and standard of goodness, he therefore by inference shows that man cannot do that good thing to inherit eternal life. The Bible is clear. Romans 3, Psalm 14. There is no one good, no not one. Sin because we're united to Adam by nature, is both guilt and pollution upon our soul. And anything that we do that is commanded by the Bible will be filled with sin. God sees the sin and it is an evil act. And so as Christ comes to this man, you can do no good thing. You have a wrong view of goodness. So when people come to us, we have to not only show them the truth about who is God, but the truth of man. Because people today have far, far too high a view of man. They also, in another sense, have a far too low view of man. But in terms of this concept of sin and obedience and good works, they have far too high a view of man. So it's our job to reveal the truth of man. And it's not hard to show sin and unrighteousness and wickedness and lying, and stealing, and covetousness in man. So that's what you need to do. Deconstruct their false view of man as good, and show them how sinful man is. Then third, salvation. 
What good thing do I do to inherit eternal life? Complete wrong view of salvation. God only is good. You're not. That means all who enter the kingdom of God do so as a little child. Spiritual weakness, spiritual poverty, spiritual bankruptcy and complete dependence on the free grace of God. Ephesians 2.8, by grace are ye saved through faith. There's nothing you can do. That's what you have to tell people. It's not about changing your life. It's not about coming to church. It's not about reading your Bible. It's not about giving you charity. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. It is all by grace. It's a sweet, free grace. And though to us, that is the most beautiful truth in the world. Is it not, brothers and sisters? But to the natural man, it's the most offensive thing in the world because it's saying you can do nothing. And natural man hates that. But then fourthly, he's correcting the man's view about himself. Good teacher, why do you call me good? God only is good. Do you understand your words? Good teacher? What, like that rabbi and that rabbi and like like who? Like Moses? Like Paul? Like Peter? Like John? Matthew? Isaiah? Jeremiah? Good like them? No, I'm far higher. I am far greater. I am God incarnate. I am the supreme good. I am the chief good. You are not understanding who I am. And by merely calling me good teacher, you are showing it. Many people will come and say Jesus is a respectable person, an historical person, an example, a teacher, even a prophet. And we must come to them and show them who is Jesus Christ. Are you able to do that, brother and sister? Could someone sit next to you right here, right now and say to me, who is Jesus? And through the Bible, chapter and verse, you can go in an instance and show and demonstrate the glory, the deity, and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Do you know your Bibles enough to prove the deity of Christ? If not, it's a bad, bad revelation of your knowledge of the Bible. I hope there's not a single professing believer in this room who has been saved for more than a year that cannot go to the Bible and find two or three verses and say, here's the glory, the deity, and the goodness of my Jesus Christ. So let us proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to people as they come to us, or as we go to them, of who is God, what is man, how are we saved, and who is the person of Jesus Christ. But after Jesus Christ objectively explains the truth, he wants to persuade the man of this. And how is he going to persuade the man? He must show him a standard he cannot reach and therefore convict him of his own sin and unrighteousness. Verse 19, thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, 
defraud not, honour thy father and mother. This is the standard. Romans 2 is clear. It's the person who keeps the law who shall be righteous before God. It's true. It's true. But here's the problem. Galatians 3. Cursed is the one who fails to do all that is in the law. And James speaks of the royal law. If you break one commandment, it's a whole. It's indivisible. You break one commandment, you break all the commandments. So here's the standard, the law. And no one can keep it. And God has given us two things to help us humble and persuade men. The conscience and the law. Romans chapter 2 verse 15 The law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. Conscience simply means with knowledge. And when a man does wrong, when a woman does wrong, inside their soul, they feel it and they're convicted and they know it. That's why when you do things wrong, there's an impulse within you. And he's given us the law. What's the purpose of the law? To show us that we cannot meet the standard and to reveal sin and unrighteousness in us. Romans 3.20 By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So you cannot be justified and right before God and inherit eternal life by the keeping of the law. But the law will do this. It will show you your sin. 1 Timothy 1.9 The law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. So law is going to reveal all your sins and all of its depths and vileness. And then Galatians 3.24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. It humbles us. It shows us our unrighteousness. It convicts us. So we are spiritually bankrupt. And now we're ready to receive Jesus Christ by faith alone. And so just as Christ goes to the commandments, you are to go to the commandments. There is no biblical evangelism without the use of the law. Without commandments coming to them and showing them they cannot keep God's standard. Everyone thinks that they're good. Everyone thinks they do their right. And then you show them the Ten Commandments. This is the revealed standard of goodness. But how does this man respond to the law? Twenty. He answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. I've kept them. I've kept them. Now I think people are very wrong when they're saying he's acting like a hypocrite. I see no hypocrisy in this chapter. I see a man who's sincere. Sincerely wrong, but sincere. 
Look at verse 21. And Jesus beholding him loved him. Does Jesus show love to hypocrites? I think we all know the answer, no. When the Pharisees came in their self-righteousness, Jesus saw the hypocrisy. But this is not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who intentionally deceives. A hypocrite is someone who purposefully puts on a mask to act one way here and another way there. There's no hypocrisy here. He's sincere. He genuinely believes he has kept the law. But so did Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul was given his testimony. He's a Pharisee. Uh, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. And it says, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Blameless. What is this speaking of is when we view the law as external obedience. This man did not live an outwardly debauched, wicked life. He was the moral example of his community and synagogue. He lived, humanly speaking, before men, a blameless life. And many people you'll speak to, when you show the Ten Commandments to, will be convicted. Others will say, I've kept that. My parents, I honour them, I respect them, I look after them. Steal, I never steal. I make sure I pay, I make sure I do my taxes right. Murder, I've never murdered anyone, I've never punched anyone, I've never assaulted anyone. Adultery, I am sexually pure, I'm faithful to my wife, I love her, I'm faithful to my husband, I love him. Covetousness, I'm content. I'm happy with myself. I'm so thankful for my life. I keep the Ten Commandments. Now you can do two things here. You can either, one, do what Jesus does in Matthew 5. It's not the mere external obedience or a superficial outward obedience. It's of the heart. Murder is when you hate someone in your heart. Adultery is when you have lusts and he could have even exposited the law even more to show how he doesn't keep these. Or, Jesus could love him. That's what it says, he loved him. This is an unbeliever. He loved him. And love is a verb. How does Jesus love him? Jesus loves him by focusing on his particular sin and cutting him deep to the heart. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Jesus loves this man. It's Jesus' will that this man comes to salvation. And it's Jesus' desire that this man denounce his unrighteousness and follow him. And so he looks at his particular sin 
thou shalt not covet. The man's God is his possessions. And as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, ye cannot serve God and mammon. As Colossians 3, 5 says, covetousness is idolatry. So he focuses on his particular sin and cuts deep, deep into his heart. And that's what we need to do in evangelism. Not merely get to the superficial, but pick an actual sin the person is under and strike it to the heart. Why? Because you love them. Because you want them to come to Christ. You want them to be delivered from the wrath to come. And therefore, you'll go straight to their particular sin. Now, of course, you can't do that in public evangelism much. This is why personal evangelism is the best and the most effective. Because you know the person. You're in their life. They're in your life. You know their particular sins. You know their idols. And you love them. And a bit of uneasiness and a bit of embarrassment is nothing compared to them being tormented day and night for eternity in hell. And because you sincerely love them, you'll go deep in a particular sin. And how many people today, even in the church, are against this? How many people say it is hateful to call people sinners or to name particular sins? But they disagree with Christ who call themselves Christians. Because Jesus loved this man, he went to the particular sin and went right to the conscience. So if you love your workmate, if you love your family, if you love your friends, and they will not be convicted by the ordinary use of the law, pick a particular commandment and sin and gently go straight to their conscience. This man's problem is covetousness. So Christ says, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And people say, does this mean every rich man needs to do that? Well, of course not. It's not a universal command. Abraham was rich, rich, rich. God didn't say, give up your money. Mary Magdalene was rich, rich, rich. When Jesus saved her, he didn't say, give up all your possessions. See, neither of them trusted in their possessions. Neither of them lived for their possessions. Neither of them trusted in their own riches. But this man does. And though the universal command is not here, the universal principle is, who do you love the most? What do you find is the most worth? Justification, forgiveness, eternal life, heaven, or what you possess. And to show true faith, trust in God and Jesus Christ more than the things of this world, he says here, go sell all your possessions, give up your life, and come and follow me around Galilee and Jerusalem and so on. And Christ says that's the principle for all who are going to be Christians. Luke chapter 14, verse 26 If any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. Does that mean everyone must leave their family physically and never be in a family? Of course not. Who do you trust in? If your children, you love them more than Jesus Christ, you cannot be my disciple. Husbands, you love your wives more than Christ, you cannot be my disciple. Wives, you love your uh, husbands, you cannot be my disciple if you love them more than me. Who comes first? If there is a real choice here, family or Christ, what would you choose? For some people, that's a real realization. I come not to bring peace, but a sword, father against son, and so on. And you have to decide right here, right now, who's most important to you, family or Christ? The answer has to be Christ. For some people, it has to be a sexual relationship. Eternal life or that sexual relationship. For some people, it might be a job. For others, it might be a hobby. Who's most valuable? Eternal heaven or eternal damnation? That's what we need to speak to people with. So much easy believism. I believe in Jesus but he's just to help me when times are bad. I believe in Jesus when I lose my job. I believe in Jesus when I lose a relationship. It's not I will love him and follow him and obey him, whatever. So when you share the gospel, don't make it easy believism, especially in this culture. And you can show this in a good way by If you give up your idol, you'll receive treasures in heaven. What's the treasures of heaven? God. God. Genesis 17.1 I am thy shield and exceeding great reward. Psalm 16. The Lord is my portion and mine inheritance. Because you'll be right with God, you'll be forgiven of God, you'll be adopted of God, and you will receive heaven and all the glories. And how do you receive this? Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 speaks about in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the glories and blessedness and life is in Jesus Christ. And what did he do for us? You take that person to the cross. And you say this, we are redeemed not by corruptible things like gold and silver. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Do you know your doctrine of atonement? Is your doctrine of atonement expressed superficial and dull? Or is it full, deep, vital and brings out the glory of God? I remember meeting a Muslim in Edinburgh. And he was a student from Switzerland. And we sat down on a bench and we spoke for about 45 minutes. And I explained to him the cross of Christ. I says, let me tell you about the cross. We are so vile and wicked and evil and debauched in our sins. 
And God the Father so loved us, he took all this sin and placed it on Christ. God the Father's wrath was poured upon Christ as a curse so that all our sins are forgiven and washed away. And then God the Father so loved us, he takes the Son's perfect righteousness and gives it to us freely and says, you're right, you're forgiven, you're adopted, you have heaven, you have me. And usually a Muslim would say, that's wrong, that's not true, but this man was breathless, soundless. And then he said, that's beautiful. And we gave him a Bible, we gave him tracts, we gave him our details, and we prayed with him. That's the cross. And then once you have Christ, well, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, he who is rich became poor so that we would become rich. Because when you have Christ, you have inheritance as undefiled and fadeth not away, but reserved in heaven for us. First Peter 1. Forget trinkets and gadgets and fleeting things and superficiality and happiness that comes and goes. You have God in Christ. Christ is that treasure hidden in a field where a man says it's so valuable, I'll sell everything that I have to have this treasure. And if you just use words to describe it, but it's not in your heart, the unbeliever can see it in your tone. Is Christ precious to you? Not merely with the vocabulary, but the heart coming out. And then after explaining the treasures of heaven, he says, come. Come, follow me. It's the free offer. Come and believe in Christ. Come and trust in him. Come and turn away from your idols. Come and turn away from your sins. Come and follow me. But if you follow me, you might have hardship and difficulties and suffering and persecution. You have to take up your cross, but it's worth it because you have treasure in heaven. Rust can't take away, moth can't take away, it's there guaranteed. And you'll experience joy unspeakable and full of glory. So when you share the gospel, make sure you prick them deep in the heart with the sin and the law but show them the freeness and the fullness of the gospel. And if they come to Christ, how gloriously rich they will be forever. Now, how does this man respond to the personal evangelism of Jesus Christ? Verse 22. And he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. In a word, he entered not into the kingdom of God. He received not eternal life. Because he's not a little child. He doesn't know his spiritual weakness. He's not completely dependent upon grace. He wants to do. He wants to contribute. And he can't give his great possessions because they're so valuable to him. And so he's very sad and grieved. 
because he can't be saved. People say, but Jesus loved him. But Jesus loved Jerusalem as well. And how did they respond with unbelief? This teaches us that when we do personal evangelism, people will not respond. Is Christ a failure? Is Christ a failure? Did he do something wrong here? Most of this is law and not gospel. Have you noticed that? People complain about that today. But why would you come to Christ unless you need to Christ? Did Christ do something wrong here? Of course not. Sometimes Christ preached and people responded in unbelief. Mark 6, 5, he went to Nazareth, he went to his own town, he preaches and because of their unbelief. And that's going to happen to the prince of preachers. It's going to happen to us in personal evangelism too. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2? Christ is a savour of death unto death. But this isn't the only response. This is one response. Another response might be, you're witnessing to them, you're evangelising them, but the seed's implanted and they'll have faith later. Is that not what happened with Nicodemus? Nicodemus doesn't want anyone to know, so he comes by night to Jesus. He's got a completely wrong view of salvation again, and Jesus needs to tell him, you need to be born again. The Son of Man's been lifted up as an atonement, you must believe in him, and it goes away and there's no words, no nothing. But then you start to see faith. Because whereas in John 3, he doesn't want anyone to know, he publicly defends Christ and testifies. In John chapter 7, he defends Jesus Christ before his other teachers and counselors. And then in John chapter 19, he doesn't care what people say about him. He will honour Jesus and bury him in the myrrh and so forth. And so Jesus planted the seed, but it was later when the man came to faith. Or John 4. You might see someone come to faith before your very eyes. As that woman in her sin, Christ came and offered living waters. And she was so saved that day, she could not but tell anyone else. And she went to her place and she told others, and others came and says, we believe now, not just because you said it, we have seen for ourselves, and he is the Christ, the saviour of the world. So he is a saviour of life unto life, and death unto death. And so as you're faithful, and the Holy Spirit is with you, there'll be times when people will reject, and there'll be times when people will respond. But you know the rich and ruler. You know people who are comfortable in life. You know people who have not got a care in the world. You know people who are quite religious, they're in your family, they're on your next door neighbours or on your street. It's that man or that woman across the office or in the other workplace. It's a fellow student of yours. Who are the rich young rulers? Go to them. Witness to them. Bring them to church. And pray without ceasing for them. Privately, in family, and in the prayer meeting. And may we learn from the way of the master and may we see many rich young rulers come and not leave sad, but rejoicing in the gospel of salvation. Let us pray. Lord our God, we are thankful 
because every single one of us by nature are rich young rulers. And we long to contribute for righteousness. But thy grace has come upon us so that we know that we are poor in spirit. And thou hast given us faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. And therefore we glorify thee. We pray if there's anyone in this house trusting in their own works, that thou wouldst humble them and show them their sin. But we pray the grace of God would conquer their soul and they would value treasure in heaven better and come to the Saviour in faith. And Father, we pray for the rich young rulers in our lives. O Lord, give us ceaseless prayer for them. Help us to go to them. Help us to witness to them in the way of Christ. And we pray many of them would not be sad and grieved, but be happy because God is their Lord. In the name of the Saviour, amen.